0: Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to Calvary Grace Church. This is our Sunday school time. And uh, Jared Carey is just passing out uh, a handout there for our class. We are continuing our study of global Christianity. And we're looking at different countries. And this morning, I want us to consider uh, a country that is in the news right now that we're all tracking with and it's it's the country of russia and we'll actually also talk a little bit about ukraine and uh so you maybe know a little bit from the news about the current politics and and even the war in ukraine and the political situation in russia but then to consider as well uh what is the the state of the gospel's advance in Russia maybe you're familiar with it my guess is you're not uh, and so my hope is that we can we can explore a little bit this way um, I'm going to read a text of scripture and then we're going to pray want you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 Revelation chapter 12 and I'm going to pick up we're, we're going to read just the first the first six verses of Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Well, uh, as we see in the book of Revelation, doesn't matter what your interpretations are of the book of Revelation, there is this repeated emphasis on the clash between the forces of Satan against Christ and his church, his bride, his people. And what we're going to see is that sometimes, in some, of some nations' history, the clash between the true people of God and what would be then the forces of the enemy can actually come not merely from a government, but can actually come through other religious groups. That's what we're going to see as a bit of a theme as we look at the country of Russia. Would you pray with me as we begin our time together? Heavenly Father, as we come before you now, we ask that you would instruct us and inform us about another part of your world, even of this creation, even of this planet Earth, even the country of Russia, this ancient country, an ancient people group. And Lord, we do give you praise that you have not left yourself without witness in that land, But we also ask that you would instruct us so that we would be able to pray for the advance of the gospel there, a very needy land, even as our own is. And so we pray you'd teach us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things you see in the news right now is, if you've been tracking it at all, is the way that Vladimir Putin, who's who's the head of, of the Russian government, Vladimir Putin has been aligned with a religious figure. The religious figure is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. And together they have formed this strong alliance. And some of the, at least the propaganda, if not the the philosophical and strategic Method that is being employed by russia in its invasion of ukraine is actually being couched in religious terms that to invade ukraine and bring it back into the fold of russia is understood as bringing together the one people under the one church the one russian government and so you have this combination of how it's been described as the throne and the altar the throne and the altar and you have those combined in russia well i'm going to make an attempt to kind of go along you've got this hand out here we'll see how this how this goes but there's a phrase that describes has often described christianity in russia and it is this often suffering often persecuted and yet persevering in hope. There's actually a Russian phrase for that. I'm not going to attempt to say it because I don't think I could say it very well. Uh, someone who, afterwards, if you, if you know Russian, you can, you can maybe share it with me. But often, often suffering, often persecuted, and yet persevering in hope. Very much like the story of China that we, we heard about earlier. But that's the best way to describe Christian brothers and sisters in Russia. And, and so that's what we're going to look at, this sober yet encouraging history of Christianity in Russia. Now, no one knows for sure when Christianity first came to the Slavic Rus people that make up the language block of what we now know as Russia and the Russian-speaking world. Uh, Orthodox Christians in Ukraine, they claim that the Apostle Andrew brought Christianity to Ukraine in the 50s or 60s A.D. So, you know, time of the Apostle Paul. So that's their claim. However, that's doubtful. What we do know is that there's, there's little evidence of any settled Christian churches in the Russian-speaking world prior to, <coughs> prior to about 800 A.D., so, you know, 800 years, you just don't really have any churches. So it's you can say that Andrew went up there, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but there weren't any established churches there. So during this time for the first 8 900 years in these in in these uh what we would understand as 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 these Russian areas, these Eastern Slavic peoples. They, they lived in Western Russia, in Ukraine, and in Belarus. And I'm going to just assume that you know some of that geography because it's basically been on our TVs every night. Uh, if you watch television, maybe you don't. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, that, maybe you don't. These folks were very primitive in the sense that they didn't have a written language. They were semi-nomadic. They just kind of traveled around. They do slash and burn agriculture. But their settled and recorded history doesn't really start until about 850 A.D. So just place this in context. Context. So 850 A.D., uh, even if you think about Canada, when did Leif Erikson come to Newfoundland? Anybody know the date? Earlier than that. 1000 A.D., 1000 A.D., before Columbus, this is our Canadian history, the Vikings came, the Vikings came 1000 A.D., came to Newfoundland. And so, and you can go to Newfoundland and you can go to this archaeological site and the Vikings were there. Um, You know, it's been said, how did Columbus know where to go? He had a map. Somebody else had been there before him, which, you know. But, But that sets it in context, so it's, so it's, it's quite late, so eight fifty, and and it's the region around modern day Kiev or Kiev in the Ukraine. So in so we're already like it's very relevant when thinking about these origins. So in eight fifty nine A.D., there was a book known as the Primary Chronicle, and this documented the history of the kingdom of kiev now most people view this then as the start of the russian people as a defined and settled society now you know the the euro asian span of russia would remain sort of a wilderness with a bunch of small city states and warring tribes for some time but that's understood as being the beginning so all of a sudden you're seeing that if kiev in in ukraine is where the beginning of this settled people and its history begins there is then an historical interest why russia wants to take ukraine back even today or at least they want to use some of that history as a justification Uh, that's maybe a little bit closer to the truth so Between 900 and 1800, you should be able to follow along, look at the origins and spread of Christianity. In the late 900s, the city of Kiev had become the the center of this small but growing Russian kingdom. So sometime around the end of of that century, the end of the 900s, just just getting into 1000 AD, there were Greek-speaking missionaries that came from constantinople so constantinople modern-day istanbul turkey right you know that that key port city the this the hub of what was known as the byzantine empire uh, these greek-speaking missionaries they made their way to kiev so they brought with them this type of writing that had the the Byzantine monks had created it. There was a couple of monks, one named Methodius and one named Cyril. And they created a new alphabet. It had the 24 letters of the Greek alphabet. And then it had 19 new letters to represent the unique sounds that were in the Slavic languages. And so after that, putting all that together, these missionaries, and in particular Cyril, came this this revised version of the Russian language with its alphabet, and that's why it's called Cyrillic. So when you see Russian letters, they're always in Cyrillic. But it's named after this missionary named Cyril. So there, you learned something today. Uh, When these missionaries, with their Cyrillic script, they came to Kiev, they found a pagan people. It was a pagan people. They worshipped various nature gods, Um, they worshipped the sun god Perun, Uh, they were characterized by violence, by immorality, and just general ignorance. Now, there was a supposed Christian convert, uh, and her name was Queen Olga. Yeah, Olga. Um, it, It elicits thoughts of what this gal might be like. Uh, but she was she was Norse. She was from a northern kingdom, uh, you know, basically a Viking kingdom. We, I would I would say she was the Nordic wife of King Zvayatoslav. Zviat I got to really work on my Ru- Russian pronunciation. He was the king in Kiev, not not up in Moscow. This is in Kiev. Now she was by all accounts, a very ruthless and terrible person. Uh, She might have claimed to be a Christian, and that's she's understood as being a Christian, but certainly there was little fruit of regeneration in her life. After the death of her husband, as regent for her young son, Vladimir, she deceived, she murdered, she carried out genocide, trying to secure the throne for him. So cutthroat, ruthless. But as a result, it's not surprising that her professed Christianity had little impact among her people. Or even on Vladimir, who was her favorite son. And and this Vladimir, he was a thorough pagan. He offered sacrifices to Russian gods. He mocked his mother's faith, whatever faith it was. His favorite hobbies were war and immorality. Uh, He had five wives. He had dozens of concubines. He seemed an unlikely person to be the man who would bring Christianity to settle in Russia. But soon after Vladimir became king of Kiev, he decided that his people needed a new modern religion to replace the disorganized paganism that reigned over his kingdom. So as the story goes, now you think, okay, here's this guy, he's the new ruler in this country. As the story goes, he had his staff investigate the four religious groups on his borders because he's looking for a new religion for his country so let's 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 survey the market let's go see what's out there see what we should adopt and so islam well he he rejected islam because he didn't want to stop drinking Uh, judaism was there well judaism was out because they'd lost their land and he he liked military victories Western Christianity, it seemed kind of dull. It was really doctrinal. But he loved the reports of the Eastern Christianity, the reports of the flashy and opulent services of the Hagia Sophia Church in Constantinople. So in 988... He trooped off to the great church of the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople in order to be baptized as an Eastern Orthodox Christian. And so, while he's there, as it goes, he fell in in love with, and after his profession of Christian faith, he he married the Byzantine emperor's daughter, Anna. Anna. And so it was all a very shrewd political move, if nothing more. The Byzantine Empire at that time was the richest, most powerful neighbor to his very weak and poor kingdom. Now, since he'd been baptized in the Orthodox Church, well now, he had a common religion with them. He had a Byzantine wife. And yet, you know, as we see... Possibly, as, as sometimes happened, God uses even apparently bad motives to do some amazing good. Because on his return, Vladimir ordered, well this, some of this is good, some of it is is bad, but Vladimir ordered the entire population of Kiev to assemble at the river outside the city to be baptized. And if you weren't baptized, you're going to be an enemy of the state. Now, this kind of forced allegiance, of course, it utterly distorts the center of Christianity. I'm just going to throw it out there. There's lots of us are talking. There's kind of lots of hubbub people talking about this idea of theonomy and different things, church and state. You've got to really weigh out what are the options when you think about these things. And this is, this is one of the options. You just have, okay, we're going to force everybody to be baptized, but it distorts the center. It distorts heartfelt personal personal repentance and faith. Now, in one sense, all of the sorry and worldly history of the Russian Orthodox Church can be traced back to this fundamental error of Vladimir. And yet, Vladimir himself, he, he seemed to have been deeply impacted by the new religion that he'd taken on. And he violently foisted it on his subjects, but, but he seems to have been affected by it. You know, as he continued to learn about Christianity, something happened to him, especially during the year following his return to Kiev. One historian observed, quote, As for Vladimir himself, his lifestyle was clearly affected. When he married Anna... He put away his five former wives and all of his concubines. Way to go, buddy. Um, Not only did he build churches, he also destroyed idols. He abolished the death penalty. He protected the poor. He established schools. And he managed to live in peace with the neighboring nations around him for the rest of his life. And on his deathbed, he gave all of his remaining possessions to the poor, unquote. So that's a remarkable change for a man who prior to his professed conversion was roundly described as a brutal, violent, warlike, and grossly immoral pagan man. Was Vladimir genuinely converted to Christ? Well, we can't really know. But historians all disagree. But, but they all agree that in the year following his profession of Christian faith, Vladimir of Kiev underwent one of the most remarkable moral, moral reformations for any monarch in history. So, so things changed with this guy. Now, whatever his sincerity or good intentions, the first act of his newly claimed faith That, namely, the forced conversion of the whole population of Kyiv, that set the stage for a bitter future. It's really key to think about this. From that day onward, Christianity in Russia was seen as both a civic duty and a way to gain the favor of the king and others in power. So you want to get ahead in society? You've got to be a Christian. You, You want to do your civic duty, you must be a Christian. It's At least a Russian Orthodox one. Not surprisingly then, the church became, for many unbelievers, it became a way to get power and influence, not salvation. They don't believe in Jesus, they don't really care about Jesus, but the way forward in society is through the church. And so for a thousand years, that union of the church and the throne along with the ranks of unbelievers that were brought in through infant baptism, it resulted in a state church in Russia that looked pretty much like the world and seldom looked to the scriptures for direction or, or correction. So that's what you have. So that got that, that characterized the whole thing. Now... There were reform attempts. There were reform attempts. Uh, There were efforts at biblical reform of the Russian Orthodox Church just at time to time. But still, this union of the church leadership with the power of the state resulted in all serious reform efforts always being put down, and not just put down by persuasion, but put down with these shocking levels of violence. So imagine that. You've got the church working with the state to oppress violently anybody that would correct the church, even sincere people within the church. So there was this group called the Old Believers in the 18th century. Uh, And there was this autocratic Russian patriarch named Nikon. He wanted to update... The practice of the Russian Orthodox Church. And the result was a full blown rebellion. And those who broke away became known as the Old Right Believers. Now it's interesting, these Old Right Believers, because they're resistant to these new changes brought in by, by uh, Nikon, these Old Right Believers, many of them fled Russia. And they settled in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. Of course, Alaska used to belong to Russia, right? And you can kind of go down the coast from Alaska all the way down through the coast of B.C., all the way down into the Pacific Northwest, so that even in Portland, a place like Portland, Oregon, there are churches with onion-shaped domes there from these old-right Russian folks. They, they resisted these things because they were they end up being persecuted because the the established church was moving in a different direction. if you didn't like it you want to stick to the old ways too bad then we're going to actually wipe you out or chase you out and a lot of these folks were chased out and so then these guys a lot of these folks are they maybe been described kind of like a Russian version of the Amish or or maybe like some of the older or Mennonites or or some of the Hutterite Hutterite colonies, that kind of thing. Now, um, there's these different groups. Uh, The uh, Strieglnicki in the 1400s, or the non-possessors in the 1500s, or the old right believers in the 1700s, or even evangelical Christians today. Vigorous persecution of dissenters and reformers has been a way of life for the Russian Orthodox Church except for a few noted monarchs. For example, ironically, Catherine the Great, she tried to enforce religious tolerance during her reign. You know, let the, let the Protestants flourish. Or there was sort of a 70-year reprieve under Soviet communism. This is really ironic that under communism, the Russian Orthodox Church didn't have as much power. And, and so, under everybody was oppressed, but actually the evangelicals actually grew stronger. But the pattern of the Russian Orthodox Church has been these shocking levels of opposition to any who disagree, any dissent, any critique of its dogma and its dominance in the religious life of Russia. Well, from 1800 then to about 1905, we can look at evangelicalism and reformation. And I, I remember talking with a, a guy I knew. I met him in Okotoks. He was, he was brought over to Canada from the, with the Slavic Gospel Mission. His name is Evgeny Bakmuski. He's a pastor of a church in Moscow. And he said to me, there's never been a reformation in Russia. The Russian Orthodox Church or Eastern Orthodoxy in general, has never had a Protestant Reformation, unlike Western Christianity, that did. And so any any reformers who have sprung up, they they tended to quickly be put in the grave. And consequently, the story of evangelical Christianity in Russia doesn't really start in large measure until the mid-1800s. As God would have it, he finally invaded Russia with the biblical gospel and it was on three fronts at the same time. The three fronts for the biblical gospel were Ukraine, St. Petersburg, and then uh, the, the Caucasus. So in Ukraine, Russia under Catherine II wanted to attract this is, so we're early, early to mid-1800s. Russia under Catherine II wanted to attract Germans to move to their newly won Black Sea territories in modern-day Ukraine. See this, this, our current news, it's nothing new. Russia taking back parts of Ukraine, giving it up, taking it back, So then what Russia did, they said, well, bring these Germans over. So then the Germans came, and they populated this area. It would be in eastern Ukraine. Thousands of Germans. And what religion were they? They were Lutherans. That's that's where the folks who built this church came from. They were Germans... That had been living in russia or some of you i know if you have your mennonite background then the thought that you might be a have be a german mennonite background but coming from russia coming from eastern ukraine well it was those folks it was lutherans and mennonites that went to this area By 1815, there were 58 German villages in Ukraine. Think about just remarkable, this overlap of history. Now, not all the Germans were Christians, but many were. All of them impressed the Russians with their moral lives and their work ethic. And the many believers among them began a movement of daily workplace Bible study. So you're at work. Okay, we're working along, let's take, let's take, instead of taking the coffee break, we're actually going to take a Bible study break, and it became known as the Stunde in German, somebody might be able to say that better, meaning the hour. So the Russians began to refer to these German Christians as the Stundes, they're the Stundes, they're the guys that have Bible study at midday, in the middle of the workday. They're the Stundists. Their movement began to involve then local Russians who were in Ukraine. And so much so that for a long time after that, evangelical Christians in Russia were called Stundists. <laughs> it's just amazing, just from Bible studies. Now, the fruit of their piety and evangelism was such that by 1858, the first local converts were baptized in Ukraine. And by 1867, there was a church of 35 local Russian converts in the city of Odessa. And as part for the course, by the 1870s then, the Russian Orthodox Church began to notice and they convinced officials then to imprison the Stundis for proselytism among the Orthodox. Because you're sharing the gospel with the Russian Orthodox folks. And by 1881, the ranks of the Baptistic Stundus had grown to over 1,000 nonetheless. And so you're, you also are starting then, right about then, and certainly in the early 20th century, then have persecution against these German Stundists, these German evangelicals. And then where did they go? Well, many of them came here to Canada, right? So this, it starts connecting with your own family tree a little bit. What about St. Petersburg? About the same time, by the middle of the 1800s, the gospel was breaking into Russia from the north as well through the city of St. Petersburg. It was through a British officer named Lord, Rastock, Lord Radstock. <clears throat> he was converted while he was fighting the Russians in the Crimean War. Remember? The British were involved in fighting Russia's in, Russia in Crimea, the same area that the fighting is in now. Charge of the Light Brigade, you know. You, you, anyways, that's all, that's British versus Russia. This guy gets saved during that war. And God moved his heart with pity for the very people that he was fighting against in the war, this Lord Radstock. So then at the end of the war, He worked through this mission agency called the English Evangelical Alliance, and he began a mission to St. Petersburg. So Lord Radstock was sent as a missionary there to St. Petersburg in 1874, 1874, and then he saw this remarkable movement of conversions, people getting saved. And perhaps most notable among Lord Radstock's ministry was the conversion of a man named Vasily Pashkov. Vasily Pashkov in 1874. Vasily happened to be the sixth most wealthy man in Russia. This guy's rich. He owned several major factories. And after Pashkov's conversion, he began then this society for promoting spiritual and moral reading, it was called, in 1876. It was basically the first evangelical publishing house andy and i just before the class were just talking about christian publishing in china here's a here's evangelical publishing in russia and so over the next eight years they translated and published 200 books so there's pilgrim's progress in russian the sermons of charles spurgeon in russian and then numerous hymnals so the kind of stuff you would you'd like to see now unfortunately in his zeal for rapid evangelism, Pashkov encouraged the churches they founded to avoid taking stands on complex doctrinal issues like the order of salvation or church government or baptism. And so these churches, they kind of held to a kind of a gospel-only Christianity, sort of an antinomianism, but gospel-only. And they became known as just simply evangelicals or Pashkovites. They would, in years to come, become a hindrance to those who actually wanted a little bit more of a doctrinally robust Russian church. And I'll just add to this, um, a a number of years ago, some of you might remember, we sent Jeff Jones, who now is the pastor out at Cochrane, our church sent Jeff Jones to Stavropol, in southern russia as part of the slavic gospel association and so we were actually involved in missions to russia but one of the things that happened after that mission trip was that there became this conflict with the russian churches and they some of them didn't like the teaching that was coming from canada and the u.s because it was too it was too focused or, or highlighted, not two folks, but highlighted the sovereignty of God and salvation. And that was that run against some of their teaching that I think was an error. And, and the result was, you, you actually see some of the, the remnants of this Pashkavite, uh stuff in the churches over there, and they actually need some doctrinal help, but they're resistant to taking it. So, it's, so you know, what's old is new again. Um, despite its wealth and influence, the Russian Orthodox Church made persecuting Vasily Pashkov and his followers one of their main goals. So in 1884, Pashkov was finally expelled from Russia by Tsar Alexander III, and he died some years later in Europe. So this is a common thing. You run up against Russian Orthodox Church, eventually they're going to get you, either kill you or put you out of the country. The Caucasus, then, uh, at the same time, there's this more Baptistic group that was like the Stundus, and they became, then, the point of gospel advance in the south. So, so in the eastern Black Sea. You're familiar now with the Black Sea, because you're seeing it on your TV every night, kind of the southern sea that borders Ukraine. Well, then, on the eastern end of that sea, There was actually an uh, an Iranian missionary, a missionary from Iran named Kasha Yagub. And his Russian name was Yakov Deliakov. But this guy, think of this this guy finished studies at Moody Bible Institute campus in Tehran, Iran. it's hard to imagine Iran was a much different nation in the late 1800s prior to the Islamic Revolution of 1878, or of 1978, sorry. Like you can't imagine, to be a Christian in Iran today is an extremely difficult proposition. But there was a time in the late 1800s when they had a Moody Bible Institute campus there. So you've got this missionary from Moody Bible Institute, this Yaakov, and he, he, was, he was traveling around the Molokan people in, in the eastern, you know, east of the Black Sea, preaching the gospel. He would go from train station to train station, preaching the gospel. Then August 20th, 1867, a local Russian man named Nikita Voronin heard him preach, and was converted. And so that, so Veronin was baptized then by a German Baptist pastor in what is now Tbilisi in Georgia, not Georgia, the state of Georgia down in the southeastern U.S., but Georgia the country. you got to work on your geography. Georgia the country. And this guy joined the local church. And Russian Baptists, which my acquaintance Evgeny Bakmuski is a part of, Russian Baptists, they note that date, August 20th, 1867, as the beginning of the Russian Baptist Church. Now, the decades <clears throat> excuse me, the decades that followed saw a steady spread of the gospel. So you got stuff in the north, you got things in the West, you got stuff in the south. Well, then all these groups, they start to converge together and they, they, they join together and they start referring to themselves as the brethren. Now, some were more strict Baptists, others were rather undefined evangelicals. But as God would have it, the pattern of Russian history continued. And a decade or so of peace and growth gave way to suffering and persecution. Again, at the hands of a Russian Orthodox official, Konstantin Pobedonetsev. Sound it out. My Russian is not great. Uh, He convinced Tsar Alexander to begin a wholesale pogrom against the evangelicals or the brethren. The Baptists and the Stundists were outlawed in 1882. Any church-owned property was confiscated the leaders were expelled from Russia, just like Vasily Pashkov. A second round of decrees in 1894 enabled the government to take the children of evangelicals. It permitted employment discrimination. It permitted disruption of church services, fines, beatings, and arrests. Thousands of Christians were sent to prisons. And others left for Siberia and Central Asia to get away from the government in Moscow. Now again, ironically, just like the first century, the biblical gospel then, it spread further and further throughout the Russian Empire. And you had Protestant churches being planted all the way to the Pacific Ocean because the Moscow government was persecuting people. Now, from 05, 1905 to 1985, you have these cycles of freedom and persecution. So, in 05, this is you know we have to keep this in mind when we think of anything going on with our government. In 1905, the wave of persecution abruptly receded; it pulled back when the new emperor Nikolai II put forward the Edict on Religious Tolerance. And so overnight, you, you've got people being sent to Siberia one day. The next day, your religion's legal. It's all good. And in 1906, he decreed that groups like the, like the Russian Baptists would be formally recognized alongside the Russian Orthodox Church to, and, they, and they could perform civil functions. They could, do, uh, they could perform marriages on behalf of the government, very much like we can do today. Now, 1918 to 1928, so the time from World War I prior to World War II. One of the little-known ironies of the Russian Revolution you have in 1917, you know, the Bolshevik Revolution with Lenin, it, it brought on something, like, oh, just stop for a minute and think. Does anybody here think communism is good? If, if you do, speak to me after. Um, communism isn't good. Russian Revolution was an awful thing. And we can be worried about all kinds of things like this. But this is what's amazing. One of the little-known ironies of the Russian Revolution of 1917 is it brought on something of a golden decade of gospel-preaching Protestant churches in Russia. So the culture was... Awful. But what happened? Well, explanations can be speculative, but what's clear is that the communist government saw the Russian Orthodox Church, with its long history of entanglement with the czars, as their great enemy. While Protestants seem to have been viewed as potential allies, or at least as a smaller, less urgent threat. And the result was that the decade from 1918 to 1928 saw some of the greatest freedoms and the fastest growth ever known among Russian evangelicals and Baptists. And that's, friends, that's just, that's not, you can't think that up in a worldly way. Like that doesn't, it defies worldly logic. For example, around 05, the Russian Baptist Union had 162 churches with about 11,000 members, 400 preachers, 10 church buildings, but by 27, there were 4,000 Baptist churches with an estimate of 400,000 members and over a million weekly attenders, a massive explosive growth. Other evangelical groups has similar freedoms and growth with the total number of members in in gospel-preaching Russian churches reaching more than one million. Now, what's the story? What's the theme here? Well, ebb and flow, right? The good times didn't last. Stalin began to shift the Soviet government from dialogue with the Protestant Christians toward repression. And then in 32... He began his plan to wipe out religion in the Soviet Union entirely, to wipe it out. So then nearly 700,000, 700, Christians were repressed. That's the Soviet term for public punishment that ranges from job loss to imprisonment. By 1939, the only Protestant church that was allowed to legally operate was Moscow Central Baptist Church, down from 7,000 legal Protestant churches that existed just a decade earlier in 1928. So these were dark days for Russian Christians. But in another strange turn of providence, help came from another unexpected place. This time, who could think it? This time from Adolf Hitler. When Hitler attacked Russia in 1941, Stalin realized that defending Russia would require the help of every Russian, including the millions of devout Russian Christians. So he promptly brought his extermination plans to an end, and he dramatically softened the persecution. Both Russian Orthodox and Protestant churches were allowed to resume their organized activities and many were restored to their former properties. Who could know? After the war ended, Stalin never returned to his former wholesale plan to eliminate all the Christians. He did force all the Protestants, that's meaning mostly the Arminian Evangelicals and the mostly Calvinistic Baptists, along with a few Pentecostals, he did force them together into one union of evangelical Christian Baptists. In, 19, in 1948, about 2,000 of these mixed congregations were legally registered in, in the USSR. Many chose not to register and risk arrest, and risked arrest to keep their doctrine more defined and biblical. Now, after the death of Stalin in 53, I know this is lots of dates, but we're just going through here. We're almost there. Uh, 53, things changed for the Russian Christians, but not much better. Nikita Khrushchev, the new Soviet leader, he announced a shift from militant atheism to scientific atheism. From militant atheism to scientific atheism. In essence... It was an admission that the old Stalinist policies of active persecution had failed, and there needed to be a new approach to destroy the Christians. So, what they did, there was many religious prisoners who were freed from the Soviet gulag, and the most heavy-handed repressions, like shutting down churches, was abandoned. But instead, these more subtle and scientific methods of persecution came on. So they infiltrated the churches with the KGB. They had informants. They used blackmailing. They even used psychiatric hospitalization of Christian leaders, putting them in the hospital saying, you've got a mental disorder. So that'd be like, you know, they come to put me, take, take me and put me in the psych ward because of what I believe, because I believe a man rose from the dead and is still alive, ascended in heaven. And they'd think, oh, you're crazy. We better put you in the psych ward at the hospital. Khrushchev famously declared that the last Christians would be shown as oddities. They'd be used for comic relief as oddities on TV within a decade. You know, Christians just be these weirdos you parade out for a laugh. There'd be so few of them. It's only going to take 10 years. But his dream never came true. A decade later, in 1964, he was the one deposed from power, and the Russian Christians were still there. Now, though they endured, the 60s were really hard years for Russian Protestants. During the 60s, the Soviets banned all children and high school students from attending unscientific church services. Some of the Baptist Union went along with each of the new incremental restrictions from Moscow, hoping each one might be the last. But then you had another group of leaders. They felt things had gone on too long, and in 63, they split with the Baptist Union. Those churches no longer were willing to see their meager freedoms eroded by by what was going on, so they formed the unrecognized Council of Evangelical Christian Baptists. Many local churches split. Many unregistered churches joined the new council. By 65, around 100,000 Christians had identified with this new illegal group. They were severely persecuted by the government throughout the hard days of the 70s and early 80s. Somehow they managed to endure in the face of this grinding, unyielding, unyielding harassment and persecution. From the outside, it might seem that the Russian Christians were being worn down, but in reality, it was the Soviet state that was nearing exhaustion. And if you know the history, 85 to 97 is perestroika and revolution. Uh, I'm going to have to kind of speed it up here. You know about Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, probably one of the forgotten men of history, disliked by everybody, and yet he saw that there, there needed to be change. He became the leader of the Soviet Communist Party in 85, he instituted perestroika, which meant reform. Uh, he wanted to modernize the Soviet economy. He wanted to open up economic freedoms. He, he announced in 1988 the policy of glasnost, and some of us who are older here, I, I remember these terms. Glasnost was openness. And there was these new freedoms, uh, freedom of conscience, freedom of the press, freedom of religion. Then the Soviet Union then finally gives up after 70 years of failed persecution. In 1988, the government of the Soviet Union held celebrations in Kiev and Moscow to mark the 1,000th year of Christianity in Russia since the baptism of Vladimir back in 988. So they completely flipped their policy. In essence, after 70 years of failed persecution, the USSR waved the white flag of surrender to the persevering Russian Christians who had in part simply outlasted the Soviets' will to persecute them. 87 and 97, I'll just speak briefly. 87 and 97, there was, there was then huge freedom. Huge freedom for, for the Baptists. They could start private schools. They could, they could do all kinds of things. Um, it was this golden age for the Protestant church. Churches were filled. Bibles from the West were plentiful. Spiritual interest was high. New churches planted. They had this season where thousands of men and women heard the gospel and responded in repentance and faith. Many of the younger church leaders who didn't grow up in Christian families, they came to faith during that decade from 87 to 97. But from 97 to the present the old persecutor returned. And, and who's the old persecutor? It's the Russian Orthodox Church. With the rise of Vladimir Putin, Putin made a decision to join together with the Russian Orthodox Church to try to rebuild the empire. So in 1997, a law was drafted, and this law removed legal recognition for any organization that it existed in Russia for less than 15 years in other words prior to 82 so if if the group had started since 1982 they were outlawed <laughs> so any new denomination new groups they're done this meant that all Christian groups other than Baptist Methodists, and some other evangelicals could no longer exist legally in the Russian Federation Then three years later, an even more restrictive law on countering extremist activity. It was passed under the leadership of Putin. And one of the main purposes of the new law, again, was to allow the Russian government more easily to persecute Protestant churches under the vague standard of fighting extremism. Some of this, you know, ironically, sounds familiar even in our own context. Now, we see then this fusion of the church and state, of, of the throne and the altar, as it's been called, between Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, who's using whom, the Russian Orthodox or Putin? Depends on, depends on the day. It depends on the perspective. But this is return, and this is actually, when you look at the war in Ukraine, the Russian Orthodox Church is actually very much a part of this. Now, just some closing observations then, and I know this has been really long. The first, the first observation we've seen is that Christianization, quote-unquote, is not the way that real Christianity spreads. If you're, if you're thinking, you're, you're, you've been reading about theonomy, if you think then the rapid Christianization of society is how real Christianity spreads, you have bought something, uh, that's false goods. It's not the case. Patient labor for real heart conversions must be done. Merely producing the rapid impression of visible fruit, whether by the sword or by other means, may set up a nation then for terrible misunderstandings of what it means to be a Christian in years to come. It's what we talked about last Sunday in the parable of the soils, but well, we'll talk about this today in John 15 on the vine and the branches. So think about what's coming after. Secondly, God almost always preserves a people for himself, even in Russia, even in the midst of all this. While gospel-preaching Russian churches are still still gathered today, they're preaching the same gospel they preached before Lenin and Stalin were even born. God has preserved true gospel-preaching throughout even, even though there's been all of this stuff allied against them. Thirdly, Russian Christianity triumphed, in part, merely by persevering. You know, they weren't necessarily so clever or so strategic. They just kept following Jesus, and they let Jesus deal with the results, which is, a, I mean, it's a really good word for us. Fourth, opportunities don't usually last, so we have to be ready to take them. I, it's, it's just something for us all to consider. I've, I've talked about it before. We're still in such a consumer mindset. But are we taking advantage now, if you're worried about losing freedoms, religious freedom, freedom of conscience, whatever, if you're worried about that, are we taking advantage of all the freedoms we do enjoy right now to build and create and establish all of the structures to help us persevere in the future? Or are we just more like, yeah, I don't know if I like the music. Or I think the preaching's better over at the other church. Or yeah, I don't like this building. You know, what, is, is that where we're at? At that thin level? We've got to get with the program. This is the same in China. They, were, they knew persecution would ebb and flow. So if persecution came off, they took advantage and did stuff they couldn't do. And when the persecution came, they knew, we're going to outlast it. Fifth is encouraging a new generation of godly biblical leaders in Russia. Even if the opportunities in Russia may be more hard won today, there's still lots of reason for optimism about gospel projects in Russia. One of the foremost is the new generation of Russian church leaders that are coming on the scene. They have good theology. They're careful and faithful in evangelism. They're serious about church planting. They're serious about reforming existing Russian Baptist churches. Protestants in Russia can claim, along with all Christians, all that old hope that their prospects are as bright as the promises of God. Well, that's a whirlwind. Um, I'm relying on, on this course seminar created by... Capital Hill Baptist, so I don't want to take credit for this work. I've d- thrown in a few of my own anecdotes. Um, but I'm going to just take, I, I got no time at all really, but I'm going to take one question and then I'm going to pray uh, because I took too long. Anybody got a question? Okay, I'm going to pray and you can ask me a question afterwards. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us a burden for this land that we hear about in the news. These people who are persecuted, even the Christians in Russia, the Christians in Ukraine, those people who want to see the advance of the gospel, those people who don't care about the empires of men or, or who want to prop up false teaching even if it claims to be a church lord we pray that you would thwart the efforts of the russian orthodox church to oppress gospel preaching churches we pray for pastor evgeny bakmuski at moscow bible church we pray that you give him wisdom as he leads so many other churches by his influence we thank you for russian translations not only of the bible but of good Christian literature. We pray that that would continue to spread. Lord, we ask that you would help us to realize that some of our own fears have been faced by Christian believers in other countries time and time again. Help us to trust that you are the one leading us onward. You will cause us to bear fruit in due time. Help us to put our faith in you and let the example of these Russian believers spur us on even this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.